Well, this morning we're diving into David, uh, and we are in part two, so we're going to be looking at another picture of him today. We're going to be looking at uh, a portrait of him uh, as a musician this morning. As you just saw, the idea of music is a powerful thing, and hopefully by the end of the sermon you're going to see that it's not just a powerful thing in testimony, it's also a powerful thing throughout Scripture, and it's a powerful thing I think that can um, hit all of us, uh, even for those who may feel like, "Ah, I'm not really into the music thing. I'm um, not really much of a, a guy who listens to, to music or whatever, but this morning, it, it's interesting because as we talk about the musician, it's going to be hard because music can be a hard thing to reach consensus on. Uh, some of you can listen to just about any kind of music. Some of you are like, no, I have one kind of music and that's it. Uh, it just depends on where we're at, but I think uh, it is such a wide topic that um, we're all over the place as far as style. We're all over the place as far as some listen for content, some listen for emotion, some could care less. They just, whatever's on the radio, it's fine, and, and they roll with whatever they have. But here's our main thing we're going to get through uh, this morning as we look at David and his life, is the power of music can really span the gap between our minds and our hearts. And I hope that that is embedded into your mind this morning, but also into your heart, that the power of music is meant and can span the gap between our heads and our hearts. Our snapshot this morning will come for, through 1 Samuel chapter 16. We're going to look at verses 14 to 23. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open there. We're going to spend our morning in this snapshot of David. Um, the scene is set directly after David is anointed king. Uh, so we've just seen Samuel come out and anoint him with the oil. And then he said, you're going to be king. And then David goes back to shepherding. And that's all we've seen. And so if you were to watch the movie of David's life, it would be from this shepherd shot where David's kind of walking back to this field of sheep and the, and the camera angle kind of just watches him walk off. And you're kind of like, well, that was weird. Well, the next shot, I believe, in the movie would look like this. It's a cut to the palace. It's a cut to this huge, expansive palace where King Saul is, the reigning king. And the camera would then zoom in on an emotionally disturbed Saul a Saul who may have been in the middle of possibly a panic attack or some kind of deep depression. And it would be a very different shot than David walking back in tranquility. It would be this weird, quick transition to this king who's just barely holding it together. For those who aren't really familiar with panic attacks, there are times when your brain kind of goes crazy and can start to release some pretty uh, hefty hormones and make you feel as if you're going to die. It's not fun. You can't breathe. Your heart races. And all you can think about is the end. It's just, it's, it's, it's a terrible place to be. And many of you in this room have had those and you, you know what that's like. And so it was this inner turmoil that, that we see Saul in. And we don't know for sure that it's a panic attack. We don't know that it's depression per se, but we do know that something is wrong with Saul and he can't get it together. Together. He's, he's trying, but he can't make things work. And so the angle zooms in on King Saul, and that's where we pick up in verse 14 today. So let's dive into David as a musician, and we begin in verse 14. Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. And so we, we see that there's some kind of theology happening here. We see that the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul because we also saw that the spirit of, uh, spirit of the Lord went to David. So it's a very juxtaposition of now the spirit is with David and it's away from Saul. And Saul is here 
with a harmful spirit from the Lord tormenting him. And this is where we get a lot of weird angles on theology, right? Um, This is one of those ones that you turn to in the Bible and you're like, wait a second. We just said there's a harmful spirit and you said that harmful spirit is from God and God is tormenting him. But I heard that God was loving and kind and gracious and he doesn't torment people. Like he's not up there just kind of poking at people. So what's the theology here? What's going on with this? Well, let me give you a couple different options and then you can kind of play around with this in your own world. This is uh, a portion of scripture that, again, goes into that idea of the uh, non uh, not, not important, but, but the, 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 the small rock versus the big rock kind of foundations of our faith. This is one that you can look at this passage and disagree, and we can disagree on it. But ultimately, let me give you some things that I think may be going on here. First option that we see in this passage is a demon is doing Satan's will, and it's allowed by God to happen. So that's one theology that would say, well, what actually is happening here is there's a demon or tormenting Saul, and it's by force of Satan, and Satan's having his way with, with Saul, and God has kind of like just stepped away and allowed this to happen. That's, that's one theology that, that we come out of this, and you could back that up throughout Scripture and say that, that would fit as far as where it's at. The, section one, the second one is the Holy Spirit is tormenting Saul. Some would say that, no, it's, it's actually God tormenting Saul for the sake of discipline. And so he would be saying that, that God's allowing the Holy Spirit or the Spirit of God to torment him in order to bring him back to repentance, which there's some things in that, that that may or may not hold. And then three is an angel allowed by God to torment Saul. Now that's a little different in the fact that the Holy Spirit would be something that is the triune part of God. So it would be God himself tormenting. If you said an angel is allowed to, to torment Saul, that's a little different because then that's God giving a command to an angelic being tormenting Saul. Isn't this great? Like first verse, we've jumped into some really good theology. Um, and, and so that's option C. And then there's D, which is the third option. And this is where we kind of people pull back from the Old Testament and say, well, it really wasn't an angel. It was kind of just a mental illness and they didn't know what to call it back in the Old Testament. So they just said, it's probably some kind of spirit. So it's probably a mental illness, but it's classified as a spirit because in that day and age, they wouldn't have been able to classify depression or panic attacks or things like that. So they would just say it was a spirit because everything was spiritual. And so that was an option too. Um, So there's four different options and each of those you can debate and you can talk through with, you know, friends and family like you always do over birthday parties. Hey, about that first Samuel passage, what do you think that was? Um, I don't think that ever happens, but it could. And so there's your talking points for this afternoon. As you go to lunch, you can be all caught up in this and be like, I think it was. Um, I think one of the better options may be option A, but I could be talked through a couple of different pieces of that. But uh, option A seems to make the most sense in the fact that God seems to be stepping away from Saul and allowing Satan to do his work and really drawing the difference between David and Saul in the beginning of this passage. That is really just the beginning of the sermon. So we're not going to dive heavy into that, but we just did. So regardless, Saul could not find any relief. And we watched the sovereignty of God in the life of David again. God is, I think what's really happening here is God is moving the pieces around to set up David in a prime spot in the life of Saul and in the life of those around him. So imagine this is kind of happening, and now we're going to start to see how God is moving the pieces around for David um, as he goes through this. So he's disturbed. He can't get things right. His brain is messed up. 
and you can't find relief. And so the plan is to bring in an Ed Sheeran or Post Malone to comfort this guy named Saul and get him to sleep, which if you ever read the, the, the ratings, actually Ed Sheeran's like number one artist to fall asleep to. So there you go. Um, but it, they're trying to bring in this artist and they're trying to find a guy who can play the soothing music and get this guy to go to sleep and get some relief from this thing. And so we read in verse 15 to 17, and Saul's servant said to him, Behold, now a harmful spirit from God is tormenting you. So they believe the same. Let our Lord now command your servant who are before you to seek out a man who is skillful in playing the lyre, kind of a guitar, stringed instrument kind of thing. And when the harmful spirit from God is upon you, he will play it and you will be well. Again, Ed Sheeran would come in with his four track and he'd just kind of like hit every you know, loop and he'd just loop himself and it'd be great. And everybody's like, oh, this is so soothing. It's Ed. Um, and he's British. It's crazy. Anyway, so that's kind of the idea. You got to get some help. We got to get some music in your world. And it seems like an odd thing, right? If many of you came to me and you said, I'm having panic attacks and anxieties, some of you would just say, what do I do? Their first response is, get some music around you, get some things that are calming you down and get some sleep, and that's where they head. So God is about to set up David here. God is about to show the difference between David and Saul. But before that, it's interesting that his servants are the one who ask for the relief and not Saul, because Saul couldn't even get his mind right to get some relief, and so they are the ones to bring in the relief. So that's what's happening, and we pick up now in verse 18. And we hear a little bit about David's resume. So one of the young men answered. So we don't know who this was, but he was somebody around King Saul at this point. And he's like, you know what? I know a guy. I know an artist who's not a record label yet. He hasn't been found. He's just kind of on the periphery. But I think this could be the guy that could be the guy that could soothe our king and, and really bring some, some relief here. So verse 18 is probably the most crucial piece of this section. One of the young men answered, Behold, I have seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a man of good presence, and the Lord is with him. It's interesting. I don't know if Saul saw it or not, but we can see it looking back in hindsight. And it's interesting when you look at David's resume and you look at who King Saul was, it was very ironic that David's resume was the exact opposite of King Saul. And it was kind of like this backhanded slap from God himself of, this is the guy we're bringing in to bring the relief. And he looks nothing like the king. And so you can almost hear the narrator of this story kind of laughing to himself saying, they don't see it. They don't see that this David is the exact opposite of King Saul, and yet King Saul is the king. King David is the anointed king, and he's the one that we should be following, but Saul is still reigning, and here is his resume. So first off, he's skillful in playing. That's huge. Uh, apparently he had some really good skills in, the, in, in shepherding and other things growing up where he was just able to, to write these musics, the, these, these albums and things that were just really powerful. So he had skillful in playing. And then he says he's a man of valor, which is interesting, right? He's a man of integrity. He's a man of action. He's, he's that idea of, 
when you were, uh, in, I think I told you this before, but in, during Christmas we were watching um, Medal of Honor on Netflix, and uh, it's a really interesting little docu-series. And it basically just highlights these guys who won the Medal of Honor in war. And it just kind of retells their story, and it puts it in narrative. And it's just amazing to think of some of these stories. One of our favorites was this uh, African-American who was part of this patrol that went out and, in Germany. And uh, it was a patrol that nobody wanted because obviously racism was huge back then. And nobody looked at them as being anything. And this guy, not only, you got to see the story, but this guy not only um, infiltrated the enemy, but he, he did so by taking some guys with him. He was shot, I think, what, three or four times on the way to get rid of this German bunker. And he's, and he's shot all these times. And then these Germans come from the bunker to him. He's laying on the ground, bleeding out. He waits until the appropriate time, gets up, kills 10 more of these guys. And then, and then after he kills them all, he's still bleeding out. He's got four shots in him. He, he captures the leftover Germans in this little bunker and marches them back to the tank. And as he's marching them back to the tank, he spoke four different languages. He's interrogating them in German on the way back to the tank. So when he gets back to the tank, this white officer who had no idea what was going on, he comes to this white officer and he's like, boom, because he gets him to this thing and he goes, what, what happened? Where, where, what's going on? And he gives him this, this, this location, this location, this location. And he's like, hey, I interrogated them on the way here, by the way. It's just an amazing story, and it's a true story. And you just sit back and be like, that is a man of valor. That's a guy who just took action and wasn't afraid to do things. That was David, man of valor, a man of war, he says. He is a man of action. He's a man's man. He was a really big dude who just made an impression upon those around him and would have been followed into battle easily. He was prudent in speech. Isn't that great? Not many guys that I know, or myself included, are prudent in speech. Like, we just kind of let things fly. Uh, David was a guy who kind of thought through things. He didn't just let things go. He just kind of said, I'm going to think about this before I speak. Maybe that's where we just kind of put application to stop there, right? Because I think many of us in the room were like, oh, that would be awesome. If I could filter my tongue, man, my, peop- my coworkers would be so happy. Like, they would love me more if I could just keep a tight rein on this thing. But I'm not prudent. I don't keep a rein on my speech, and I just kind of let things fly. Well, David was that. He was a man of good presence. In other words, he was handsome, uh, which always helps. This is like the epitome of lists for most of us guys in the room. We're like, oh, like, skillful in playing, he was a musician, man of valor, man of war. The dude was rough and tumble. Like, he would hit the duck blinds and go hunting, and, and yet he'd play a song on the way back. And, and he was handsome, and all the ladies like, he hunts, and he sings, and he's a man of war, and he's handsome. And we're all like, well, I, I don't know what I got. I got nothing. Um, and, and he says, lastly, which is the biggest piece, the Lord is with him which you think Saul maybe would have heard that, but he didn't. That's a big turning point. That's the biggest indicator of what God's doing here. The Lord was with David. He was not with Saul. And so David sends him into this place, and it works. And we see God's sovereignty again, where David now has a a full-time job as a shepherd and a part-time gig as a musician and armor bearer. We read in verse uh, 19, Therefore Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me David, your son, who is with the sheep. Like, this guy's hanging out with sheep. He's the most undiscovered artist of our time, and he's hanging out with sheep. And Jesse took a donkey laden with bread and a skin of wine and young goat and sent them by David, his son, to Saul. And David came to Saul and entered his service, and Saul loved him greatly, and he became his armor bearer. 
And Saul said to Jesse, let David remain in my service, for he has found favor in my sight. You see, David was being set up for something that only God saw. David, who knew he was going to be king, imagine that going to, imagine if you knew you were going to be president of the United States and you're told this at 18 and your, your first gig is to play music at the White House. Like, and you're kind of just this undiscovered nobody and, and, the, and the staff gets to know you and the president gets to know you and, and they start to understand who you're all about and the whole time you're just waiting for your shot because it's just not there yet. And, and David was sent and he's in this place And here's the first clear thing I see the God doing in this passage before we hit a lot of the music, and that is this, that God uses the newly anointed king to refresh the newly rejected king. Isn't that crazy? That God is the kind of God who will use the newly anointed king to refresh the newly rejected one. That Saul was rejected, there was nothing left of Saul as far as kingship. This was the downward spiral of Saul's reign. And yet God in his grace sends this newly anointed king to refresh the newly rejected one. And and that's the kind of God you serve, who's this kind of an ironic kind of God who who does as he wills, and yet does things not only for his glory, but for our good. And somehow in the midst of this rejection of King Saul, he is refreshed. And that's the first thing that we, we can grab from 1 Samuel and how he's written this passage The second thing we see is the power of music and that it can, again, bridge the gap between our minds and our hearts. We see in verse 22, and Saul said, er, yeah, as we continue in verse 22, let him remain your sight, verse 23, and whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and was well, and the harmful spirit departed from him. And so you see this musician is working things for the good of Saul, but only for the good of God. And you see that music is an important piece here. It's an important piece in Scripture. It's an important piece in our own life. And this morning, I want you to understand that as we talk about music, that God has given us this thing called music for our benefit and for our good. And that's really where we're heading this morning. So this isn't going to be a heavy, like, you need to do this kind of sermon. This is going to end with a, let's just be thankful and process the kind of God we have who gives us this musician as an example of a God who uses music in our own life. And again, music will bridge that gap between our minds and our hearts. We saw it with Saul, and we can see it in our own life as well. Here's the pushback that I normally receive when we talk about any kind of music or worship and stuff in, in church. Um, is it's, it's a masculinity problem, I think, sometimes, right? So let's talk real quickly about music and masculinity. So let me talk to the guys in the room. This series uh, wasn't intentional, but I think it's really cool of God's timing to take us through the life of David for the guys in the room. Um, and so for you're a guy and you just come into church this morning and you're kind of like, I'm not really sure if I'm into this whole David thing. I'm not really sure if I'm into the church thing. Let me give you some things about David, um, particularly when it comes to music. Because if I know you and I know me, um, we men typically don't like to sing in church. It's weird. Um, only at concerts do guys go into a crowded public place and start singing out loud. Uh, and so when you come into a church and it's like, uh, nope. I'm good. You know what I mean? Like, I don't really, it's not my thing. I'll listen, but it's not really helpful for me. And it may be uh, just 
weird for you, and that's normal. I understand. I get where you're coming from this morning, and maybe that's the first time you've heard that in church. Like, oh, really? Somebody's acknowledging that? It's true. It's kind of a weird thing. Um, it, it's probably not in your day-to-day routine to just bust out in song. Um, probably where you work, if you did that, people would be like, that dude's got some things. Uh, and so for you, it's just not your normal routine. Uh, I, here's the other thing I know about you that I know about me. Um, <laughs> music, especially when it comes to emotion, is weird. Um, when we try and tap into our emotions, that sounds weird. Uh, it sounds kind of like, I don't know that that's really what men do. Uh, but honestly, uh, it may even be, when we talk about worship music and singing in church and this idea of connecting our head to our heart, it may even be, some of it may be just the industry itself. So uh, there's a book um, called Why Men Hate Going to Church uh, or Won't Go to Church or something like that. Uh, it came out a while back and it was just a really interesting read. Uh, this quote came out of this book. And so let me just kind of just, I'm going to read it. I don't fully agree with it, but let me just read it because some of the ladies in the room are like, wow. Okay, I get it. So just let me read it. Okay, and then you can judge me accordingly. The Christian music industry knows its audience. Lonely women who long for a lover and cautious mothers to protect their children. (laughs) Meeting their expectations keeps the cash registers ringing. Now, See, now there's some of you in this room that you're like, amen, amen. There's, there's others in this room that are going like, and there's other ladies maybe in the room that are like, can we just burn that book? Because that is the worst quote I've ever heard in my life, right? Now, I put that out there for a reason. I don't fully agree with this quote. <laughs> I don't fully agree that's the music industry. However, there are pieces and parts that are coming up in the worship realm itself that are lending itself to a lot of poetic reading and a lot of these, you know, large kind of thoughts and, and emotions kind of thing that are sung that, that kind of gear towards this, you know, more of a feminine kind of relationship with God that can be there. Now, I get it. I'm getting the daggers. Let me just switch up real quickly. As I say that, I understand that there are just as many on the other side that are like, no, 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 you don't understand. There's great hymns of the faith, and there's things that are that, that are strong, powerful things of men, and things like that. And then there's the third option. Let me give you this. I don't know of any guys, per se, that are sitting in the duck blind with somebody, guns on laps, and start talking in the vernacular of a worship song. Does that make sense? So let me just give you, just give you an example. So... We just sang Overcome, correct? Great song. Fantastic. I don't know that guys getting together, just hanging out, talking, are going to say, hey, you know what? I was thinking the other day, life's been kind of hard. It's kind of like when the darkness fades into new beginnings. You know what I mean? And, and, and as, as we're talking about that, what I did was when I started to feel down and, and, and uh, you know, depressed, what I did was I lift my eyes to my hope beyond. And then after that, I thought, this is going really well. And I thought, you know what else waits for God to move? Creation. And so I started thinking, all creation probably just waits for this with an expectation. And all of this really, dude, I mean, as we're talking about this whole shooting ducks thing, right? I mean, can I just say that I really declare, I want to declare the reign of the Lord my God to you. Like, that's what I want to do right here, right now. I want to declare the reign of God, right? To which you load your gun and you're kind of like... You know what I mean? Like, it's just, it's just going to just braise the shoulder. It's not going to just, it's not taking him out. It's just enough to kind of like, you know, just to get him to be quiet. And it's, just, it's not going to kill him. It's just enough to kind of wound him. 
And so let's just be honest. I mean, there's worship songs that are meant to be worship songs, right? They're meant to bridge the head to the heart. There's a, there's a reason we don't talk like that in normal life. I'm not picking on Rich. I'm the one that kind of, we talked about this. These songs were part of the deal, right? As I just threw them under the bus, right? This is going so well this morning. I've offended everybody in the room pretty much. So it gets better. But, but, we're, but if we're honest, like that's not how we talk, right? And worship is not meant to be how we talk. Worship is meant to slow us down to reflect on Scripture, to be transformed then by God himself. It's not meant to, to be normal conversation. Normal conversation is normal conversation. It's meant to kind of get our hearts aligned to our heads and draw the connection between. Make sense? We're going to sing a hymn in a little bit. And not many of us, as we think about this hymn that repeats things, the only reason music is actually good is that it's repetitive, Right? And so think of that same analogy. Not many of us talk in repetition, or if you do talk in repetition, people are like, you should see the doctor. You know, if you're kind of like, I praise God, I praise God, I praise God, I praise God, God, I praise you. Like, everybody's like, no, right? It's, it's, it's meant to be repetitive because in worship, it's meant to slow our brains down. Now, Let's take that in another direction. If I did say, God, I praise you, and I think that in my head, and I say it out loud, if I meditate on that for an hour during my day, and I come back to it later that afternoon, God, I praise you. This, this thing of work is killing me right now. I just need hope in you. I can say it again, and I can say it again throughout the rest of the day. It gets weird in worship, though, right? Because sometimes it's just repetitive. But it's repetitive because it's meant to slow us down. It's repetitive because that's why music sounds so good is when there's repetition, okay? There's a whole sidebar rabbit trail to this. There's a whole TED Talk on, on music that's not repetitive, that's math- mathematically accurate, but it's literally the worst music in the world, but scientists use it for, ra- for um, pinning radars and stuff like that, sonar and stuff for subs. It's a crazy world we live in. <laughs> and so, but they said, this is the most disturbing song you're ever going to hear. And they played it on the piano, and it, didn't, it was just the worst song you ever heard because it had no repetition. But you play repetition, and it's like, oh, this is good. This is good. And it's meant to be that way. And this is what music is all about. So, men in the room, can I just say, worship is not something to run from. It's something to embrace. It's something to walk into. Because regardless of how you feel about it, David is our example. And you hear more about us. <clears throat> we're going to hear more about David and a worshiper and the weirdness of David's worship on June 23rd. But for today, for today, here's some things you need to know about David and why he is such a great example for us when we talk about singing. One, he wrote songs not for labels or for producers. Producers. He wrote, and let me give you a couple things that were going on in David's life as he wrote songs. Most artists today aren't going through these things, but David was going through these things as he wrote his psalms. First thing, when he was on the run from his son Absalom in Psalm 3, he wrote a song. Absalom's trying to kill David. We're going to get into that later. It's coming up in the series. He was trying to, to flee from his own son who wants to kill him, and he decides to write a song. He wrote when Saul sent mercenaries to watch his house in order to kill him. That's kind of a weird vibe. And yet he wrote a song. He wrote when he was a POW in Gath. He wrote after he had an affair and killed the husband of the woman he slept with. He, he's a guy who knows everything it is to be a guy. He knows everything it is to be in this masculinity-type world, and yet he wrote these amazing, powerful, 
powerful psalms and songs when he was there. He not only wrote songs that were, you know, these kind of like good, mushy, emotional. He wrote ones that um, actually had a conversation. Um, I'll just call you out. David was, was texting me this week, and he found a psalm. And he's like, what is up with this? Uh, and I said, interesting point. We're going into that on Sunday. He also wrote these psalms called imprecatory psalms that today should probably be played to death metal. Because as you read through these psalms, um, there's just like a no hold barred. You know, it's just a really brutal thing. Let me give you a couple things that are imprecatory psalms. Uh, why do you hold back your hand, your right hand? Take from the fold of your garment and destroy them. Drum beat coming behind you, right? May their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and their backs be bent forever. You got the microphone like this, you know, the whole thing. Pour out your wrath on them. Let your fierce anger overtake them. May they be blotted out of the book of life and not be listed with the righteous. Let his children, and he gets even better. He writes one and, and later on in 109. Let his, father, let his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. Make his children wander about and beg, seeking food far from the ruins they inhabit. Right? There's a whole theology about whether you pray those over people or not. But this morning, you need to know that David had this idea of a musician, and he is also able to write some really hard things that our hearts can kind of go to. Not only is David a musician, we also read as we kind of go through these that music was actually, do you know music was actually in creation itself? In Job 38, 7, when the morning stars, which is the angels, when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. That was when the creation of the world, there was music happening in the creation of the world. Not only that, guys in the room, you're going to love this. God commands us to sing. Psalm 96, 1 and 2. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord. Bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. 47, 6. Sing praises to God. Sing praises. Sing praises to our king. Sing praises. Again, repetition, repetition, right? Do you realize that in the Bible, that 500 times in the Bible, music is mentioned 500 times, and 50 of those 500 are commands to sing? 50 of those are written to us, men and women, to sing, and they're commanded by God. So it's not just music and creation, David's example, men in the room, ladies in the room. It was meant for us as a command to sing. Because music, when we, are in, when we go to music, it can span the gap between our minds and our hearts. As we finish up this morning, let me just do this. I want to give you one example of a modern-day David who can point us practically and to show us how this gap can be from our head to our heart spanned through the idea of music. And unlike some bands, and I won't name their names, but unlike some bands who have made millions of repeating the same four chords every song they write uh, with lyrical genius such as, if it's meant to be, it'll be, baby, just let it be. Lyrical genius! Or holy, that just demolished a great hymn never written by millions, and some producer thought, this will sell records, and so we're going to make it be that I'm... Anyway, uh, some blogger said that, I have to read this, you got to read this. This is just for me. Forgive me, this is mine. Some blogger wrote this, never about the album said mentioned. <laughs> Never before has such refined collection of strident cliches been concentrated into one insidious mass. Never, gets better, never before have the lyrics to an album evidenced such narrow-casted, pseudo-mindedless, incoherent drivel. Never before have such 
disparate and diseased influence has been married so haphazardly in a profound vacuum of taste, and never have all of these atrocities <laughs> been platooned together to be a pro offered to the public without someone, anyone, with any bit of conscience and in any position of power putting a stop to this poisoning of listening public. <laughs> I was like, that's amazing. Ah, <laughs> uh, so good. So, some music is just repeti- repetitive. This one I want to give you, I offer to you as an example of a modern day David. So this guy is named Ryan O'Neill, and I want to offer this to you as a way of our hearts connecting to our minds. Because he writes in a way that is not just a mind, but is a heart level as well. So we're going to play a song in just a second. But before I play this song, he's a guy who wrote multiple albums spanning multiple different genres. And, and, and in this, he, he, he's talking specifically in this album on emotions. And so he writes a song called Joy, and, and he basically writes about what joy would look like in a song. He writes about anger, he writes about sorrow, and then he writes about fear. And let me just kind of walk you into the mind of Ryan O'Neill uh, in his blog post on the song you're about to hear, Anger, okay? So he wrote this song on the emotion of anger. I'm going to read you some lyrics. I'm going to walk you through this, but here's, here's what he says. Um, he talks about anger, which is the 12th song on a 25-song album, uh, Atlas Year Two, and it's in this idea of, you know, these, these emotions. He says, the opening line of the song is, like wildfire, it starts in my chest, the silence grows louder, ringing out in my head. And if you've ever been so angry with somebody that it just kind of billows up in you, right? And you're just kind of like, I just, and you want to throw something and you want to just, you know, it just billows inside of you. You want to say something, but you know you shouldn't say something. He says, it's like this huge wildfire that's spread throughout a canvas and it starts in my chest, the silence, which is so true of anger, isn't it? Like, it's just, it's up in us and we want to say something, but we're just quietly just brooding. The silence grows louder and it only rings in our heads, ringing out in my head. He says, the word wildfire is a play off the opening verse of joy where I talk about the sunlight starting a fire in me. The dictionary definition of fire mentions nothing of it being out of control, no negative or positive connotation, but wildfire is defined as a large destructive fire that quickly spreads over woodland and brush. I thought that was an appropriate definition of anger itself, so it felt right to open the song with that image and that idea. Whereas in joy, fire is a metaphor for energy, warmth, and joy itself, brief and tame. To which you're like, oh my gosh, this guy's like actually thought about what he writes. He goes on. Side note, wildfire is also a a word for heat lightning, lightning without sound. You'll catch it. I thought that was a neat way to pull in the cover art for the song and lyrics, as well as lead into the line about silence grows louder, right? Which is a reference to God's silence, but it's also a nod to thunderless, heatless lightning in a distant storm. To which you're like... He goes on. The music and the lyrics have a story arched together. The opening verse section has suspense, something about to explode, while the lyrics talk about the pressure building and building inside of us. Then the chorus is when things fall apart, the outburst. It all spills out. Reckless but honest words leave my mouth. Like kerosene on the flame of doubt, I couldn't make it right. Alarms will sound, but it's too late for holy water now. Sooner or later, the fire dies down. Then I'll open up my eyes. Isn't that crazy? This dude writes on a way different level. Then the fire and the anger in the story dissipates. The music settles down. And then he uses this line after the music settles in a specific part of the song. I'll try to find the image of God in mountains made in ash and clouds of smoke. What? So he's like, the anger, I know this is just for me, but 
the anger has just laid waste to your relationships. Ever been there? You say something, you blurt something out, it's done carnage to the, to the relationship. There's nothing but ash and clouds of smoke remaining because of what you've done and how you've reacted in anger. And he says, I'll still try and find the image of God in the midst of that. I'm like, that's amazing. He says, the lyric is coherent moment of the song and the sincere attempt to find God in a broken world. And the lyric, and it takes everything I have. It's so simple and basic, so much that I nearly tossed it out. But it has three meanings to me, this last lyric, it takes everything I have. He says, it takes everything to stop anger once it starts. He says, number two, at its worst, anger can take everything that means anything away from us. Number three, it takes everything I have to get me personally to the point of anger. I'm much quicker to being sad, disappointed, or irritated than angry. And he says, the final lyric, sooner or later the fire dies down, then I'll open my eyes again. That's the resolution. The fire always dies down, and usually we receive the gift of getting to start over a new day. There's more, but... When we talk about emotions connecting our head to our heart, when I read that, you can put yourself in a moment of anger and you're like, that was me. I felt that that was part of my world. But then when you hear it, it, it makes it a little different. So I want to play this song for a while. And I want you to just kind of remember the lyrics. There's going to be some up on the screen. But I'm going to go ahead and play it. I want you to hear how he wrote it in this sense of anger, knowing that every instrument he chooses is on purpose. This is probably, the, I told Ashley in the back, I said, this is the only song I think in almost every album that he has that he's put a drum in it. He says, I just don't use drums, but I felt like anger needed drums. And I'm like, that's a good point. And so I'm going to play this, listen to it, see if you can kind of catch the anger tune, and then we'll finish out. So go ahead and play Anger by Sleeping at Last. So as you think of those lyrics, right, he says, it all spills out, reckless but honest words in my mouth, like kerosene on the flame of doubt, I couldn't make it right, alarms will sound, but it's too late. And I think so often we need music that can connect that head to our heart. I think the last example I want to leave you with this morning is one that we're actually going to be singing together as we as we finish out. Um, and that is uh, a guy who, who wrote a song um, way back in the uh, 1700s. And again, much like this idea of Ryan O'Neill and um, writing songs that impact us, not only in the moment, but have an ability to impact us much later on in the future, is uh, a guy named Robert Robinson who wrote a song at age 22 and uh, the song happened after he accepted Jesus Christ uh, into his life. He had been uh, living in his own world. His dad died early at age eight in his life, and he wanted nothing to do with God. He thought it was a joke. And him and his friends went to go and make fun of church. So they actually attended a church for the sole purpose of just making fun and heckling from the back. That was kind of what they were going to do. And then this great, powerful, uh, actually was a Methodist pastor at the time, well-known in the 1700s, uh, gives this sermon, and he, he says this, this line about coming to God and, and to stop running from uh, things that torment you. And, and he says, that moment I accepted Jesus Christ. And he went into church service. He became a pastor. He got saved. But it was after he had accepted Christ, about two years after they wrote a song, and this song came out of this, this life that he had lived for so long, running from God himself. And the song is called Come Thou Fount, and it's one that you've probably heard in church world before, but it's one that has a story that's supposed to connect our head to our heart. Because the story goes, and many are trying to see, is this a legitimate story, or did this, I mean, did this really happen or not? But the story goes that later on in his life, Robert Robinson, Robinson was um, 
in his late 70s, and he had kind of just given up on church world itself, and he kind of gotten lost in the emotions, like, this is too hard to follow God, and I don't know if I, want, if I can do it anymore. And the, the, the story goes that he was on a train, or a coach, uh, uh, a coach with horses and that kind of thing, riding uh, through town, and, and as he's going, he hears the lady next to him start singing out the words of, Come Thou Fount. Come Thou Fount of every blood. And as she starts to kind of read us out, she's sitting next to the author. And the author, who hasn't heard that song or thought about that song in years because he's been burnt out on God, looks over at her and just doesn't know what to do with it. And it, he says it's that moment that they said that in his life, God used a, a song that he wrote years earlier by a stranger to transform his world and say, I'm still here. And there's a line in the song that I'm sure was, was big in his head at that moment. And it's the idea that our hearts are prone to wander, oh Lord, I feel it, right? And as you read and say those lyrics, it's meant to get our head connected to our heart and to feel what that damage would be to run from the God that we love. It's the damage we see in Saul, who's tormented by the Spirit day in, day, day in and day out, because God had forsaken Saul and put his favor on David. And David, as a musician, is now trying to draw us back into music and to draw us back into worship. So as we close, we thought it'd be appropriate just to sing together, um, as we're commanded in Scripture to do, to sing out together some words that they may be repetitive and they may maybe not where you're at, but I'm praying that as you sing them out, that God uses these to make the connection from your head to your heart, and he speaks to you this morning as we, as we close out. So I'm going to have Rich come up, and we're going to lead you guys out in, in song, and I think it's a great opportunity, again, to go back to this idea of how does my head impact my heart, and how can music bridge that gap? So maybe for you this morning, it's singing out loud. Others of you, it's maybe singing to yourself and just hearing the words of this, but that's what we want you guys to do as we finish out. So let me pray as we do that. God, thank you so much for this morning. God, I thank you that you have given us um, music. It's meant to draw us back into you. It's meant to connect our head to our heart. And so I pray this morning as we just have a couple minutes left, that we would just allow this time to connect with you, that you would truly allow the words that are sung to impact our hearts, that we would leave changed because of what we sing and how we act on them. In your name I pray, amen. Amen.